Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John in chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets, who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Now you are not fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. So we look at today's passage. Jesus is continuing to engage with the people in the temple. It seems that it's getting more and more heated by the moment. And it reminds me of kind of what often happens as we get in arguments with other people. Have you ever gotten into a very heated debate? If you've not, I would challenge you to bring up politics and religion at your next family gathering and let the sparks fly. Debates that are even very well-intended, well-researched, uh, well-reasoned, even-handed. You, you sometimes see on college campuses there might be a Christian apologist and an atheist apologist. Or you could look at our political landscape and these debates on TV amongst different candidates running for office. Some of them, no doubt, come in wanting to put up the fisticuffs, but many debates start out well-intended. But as issues and arguments uh, fall on deaf ears, as people entrench themselves in their positions, oftentimes debates and arguments, well, they turn into something different. They devolve into simple mudslinging, character bashing, overgeneralizations, slander, perhaps even violence. All of these things are, are taken up as kind of the well, if I'm not going to be able to reason my way to you, well, I'm just going to take you out another way so that I can be victorious. As Jesus has been interacting with these crowds in the temple, it's been somewhat, somewhat tame. Jesus has been trying to reason with them about who he is and his relationship to God as his father and, and he being the source of 
the living water, the true light, making very bold claims. They aren't going to listen to what Jesus has to say, and they continue to question him, and and we have begun to see the argument devolve. Jesus is getting more pointed in his words as well. If you remember our passage from last week, ended with him saying that they are not of God, that God is not their father, that their father is the devil. And so... It's no surprise that they respond the way they do at the beginning of our passage. The question that this uh, passage brings up for us as we look to these people interacting with Jesus is this. Who do we believe that Jesus really is? This is the topic over and over again that Jesus is telling to these people. This is who I truly am, and they are unwilling to hear. They're unable to hear what he's saying. And so it's the same question we have for ourselves. Who do we believe that Jesus really is? Well, if we read through this passage as you heard it today, Jesus is making a lot of very bold claims. Jesus is claiming to honor his Father, to receive honor from the Father. Jesus is saying that he is able to prevent death, that those who believe in him will never die. He says that he knows God and they don't. He says he tells the truth and they are liars. He claims to know Abraham, who lived thousands of years before this time. He claims that Abraham rejoiced at his coming. And perhaps most pointed here, and and the reason why the people get to the point of wanting to stone him to death, is at the end, he claims to be, I am. Now, if we're not very familiar with the Jewish background of, of what's happening here, that phrase, I am, is the divine name of the Old Testament God that we see interacting with the people of Israel. The eternally existent God, the one who has always been and always will be. When Moses went back to the people in Egypt, he was told to tell them, I am sent me. Jesus is claiming be God. And it enrages the people. Look at the way that they want to describe Jesus in this passage. If if we skipped over a little bit last week in in verse uh, 41, chapter 8, verse 41, they kind of give him a jab and they say, we weren't born out of sexual immorality, which is to say, you were. They call him a Samaritan, which, of course, Jesus is not a Samaritan. They probably know that, but it is a derogatory term. You're like a Samaritan. You're not even one of the children of Israel. You have a demon. You claim to be greater than Abraham, but you're not. You're not greater than the prophets. No doubt they probably think Jesus is a lunatic. They definitely think he's a heretic. And certainly at the end of this interchange, they believe him to be a blasphemer. 
And that's why they want to kill him. Whatever Jesus is doing is enraging them to the point where they think that he is worthy to be put to death. This is the view that they have of who Jesus is. They couldn't be at any more odds than they are now. As I've thought about this passage, there's, there's so many cycles of, of, in John's gospel, the same kind of conversations coming up again and again and again. And so as we seek to look at these passages, instead of just saying the same things over and over again every week, I thought, what about this passage is unique? How is this, this interaction between this crowd in the temple and Jesus unique from the other ones? And, and this idea of how people view Jesus stuck out to me, and it reminded me of an argument that was made in this book, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. It's a kind of an apologetic book of the Christian faith, uh, written around the time of the Second World War. And there's an argument in this book that's not new to C.S. Lewis, but it's certainly one that uh, we probably would know him being the source of, and that is there's a lot of people that want to say that Jesus is a good person, a good teacher. But of all the things that Jesus has said about himself, we can actually have some sympathy with the religious leaders here who know that that can't really be an option. Either the things Jesus is saying are true, or he is indeed a blasphemer and a heretic and a lunatic. And that is what C.S. Lewis puts so eloquently in his book. I will just read you an excerpt here. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who has said he is a poached egg, or else he would be of the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a a fiend, and consequently, however strange and terrifying and unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he is and was and continues to be God. Jesus is making it very black and white. He is making the highest claims possible, and to put him in some sort of neutral category is not an option. He is either a lunatic who doesn't understand reality the way it is, or he is a liar who is trying to get people to follow him, or he is who he says he is. This is the argument made by C.S. Lewis and many who have come before him, and it is one that the religious leaders and the people in this crowd understand. If what he's saying is not true, he is a false teacher and needs to be dealt with. 
But the people that can hear Jesus' words, the people that understand who he is, the people that believe in him, confess that he indeed is the Son of God. It is the question they have to wrestle with as Jesus is causing this commotion in the midst of the people of Israel. Jesus does not leave it to neutral terms. And so we can sympathize with these religious people, these Jewish people who would be scandalized by the things that Jesus is saying. If indeed he wasn't the eternal son of God. But what does that matter for us? How do we answer the question, how do we view Jesus You see, we live in a much different time. For them, the idea that God would become man is scandalous. For us, it is almost common sense. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Check the theological box. We live thousands of years later when these ideas are almost assumed. In fact, they're so assumed, people often don't even delve into them with great detail anymore. And so these claims to us fall on deaf ears in a different way. They don't enrage us in the way that they would have to the religious leaders in their time. Instead, our sinful hearts do something different. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Who do we view Jesus to truly be? We want to be able to confess these things as true, as orthodox, as, as the, the faith once for all given through the apostles to the church. And yet we often don't want to accept the implications of Jesus' words. I don't know how you feel as I will go through some examples, but this is my life. We confess Jesus as Lord, and then we pick and choose the parts of our life that he is Lord over. We confess that Jesus is our provider, and yet we are overcome with anxiety when we hear the stock market beginning to drop. We have the promised Holy Spirit, and yet we live our lives in the power of our own strength. We claim to belong to a Savior who suffered and died. And yet we're unwilling to lose even the slightest moment of comfort. We believe that through Christ's death we are forgiven. And all of our rebellion against God has been done away with. And yet we're so slow to show mercy. We believe that God is everywhere and sees all things. And yet we persist in our secret sins. We know God is the judge of all the earth. Yet we're really just afraid of men. We call this the word of God. We don't read it. We claim God is all-powerful. We don't pray to him. 
We confess all of these true things. We hear Jesus' words about what he is claiming about himself, and we say, yes, that is true. But our problem is that we actually think Jesus was a liar. The things that he said are optional. We can put them off until later. They're subordinate to our own desires. They're easily dismissed. The people before Jesus in this passage are offended at him. But in our day, we simply don't care. I don't know if that resonates with your experience of who you view Jesus to be. This is the great wrestling that we all must do in our lives as we confess our faith in Christ. That we aren't just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That we confess things that are actually tangible in our lives. That when we see Christ we profess things to be true about him, they affect the way we live, the way we see, the way we interact with other people. And yet, we will always fall short. We will always need to wrestle with these things until all things are made new. We can take these words from this message today and beat ourselves up with them. And try harder. We'll go home and we'll say, yeah, this is the word of God. I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to pray a little bit more. Indeed, maybe we should do those things. But trying harder isn't going to do us much good. Indeed, there's only one hope that we have of making any progress. And that is that we would continue to pursue and seek after Christ. And it has this ongoing, slow work of His Spirit in our lives, continuing to convict us of these things. I'm convicted of these things every single day. And when we're convicted of these things, where will it draw us to? Will it draw us to ourselves to try harder? Will it draw us to a place of apathy and dismissal? Or will it draw us the throne of God, asking for him to help us. Oh, that his spirit would be at work in us, that our apathy would go away, that the things we confess would truly have their work in us, that we would be people who are led by the spirit, submitted to the lordship of Christ, that his work and his word would direct all that we do. May we be those who cry out to him for help, When we see Jesus, may we not just confess him with our lips, but may we abide in his word. May we trust in him in a way that transforms our lives. May we we not make him so little. May he help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that enables us to see who you are, to hear your word, to even be convicted of our own sin and shortcomings. Help us to trust in your work and your grace and your mercy and your spirit to help us to move forward. Drawing us to Jesus, not to ourselves. 
We need your help. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.